scripture reading today will be in the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. I'll be in chapter 2 and 3 today. I'll be reading chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. That's Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, it's, I'm very glad to be back with you this week after traveling to Louisville for Logan's wedding. And it was a great weekend. It was a real privilege for me to, to be with people that I love in a city that I love during the Christmas season, which I love. Um, so it was great on so many levels for me. And this th- past weekend, I was feeling quite nostalgic, if I could put it that way, because I was reflecting on what it, it was for me to be newly married, what it was like for me to celebrate my first Christmas with Jamie in Louisville. And I wish I could tell you that it was magical but it really wasn't. Okay, it was, it was very difficult, actually. And I remember that even though we had been married for a few months already, Christmas brought our differences into sharp relief. I had what I believe to be a very idyllic childhood. In my eyes, my, my family was, was perfect. There was no better upbringing that you could possibly have. And the way that we did things was the right way. It was really, it was the only way. I had no category in my mind for a person who thought that eggnog was nasty. (laughs) And what do you mean you've never watched White Christmas? My My family watches it every year. That first Christmas, Jamie got me a a really special gift. It was uh, an overnight with her in Nashville and two tickets to a Predators hockey game. Really sweet, right? Wrong. Because she put those tickets in an envelope in my stocking. In my stocking, people. Are you kidding me? You you don't put the big present in a stocking. You're supposed to put that on an 
in an envelope on the tree, and that's the last present that I open. Everything else is kind of a buildup to that. And then we did go to my family's and visited my parents and siblings in Canada. And, and of course, they were equally shocked that Jamie had never seen White Christmas. And so we, we uh, wanted to remedy that as fast as possible. We were excited to introduce it to her. And after the movie was over, we all looked at her expectantly like, so, you know, like, do you see what we mean? Awesome movie, right? And Jamie was like, I, I couldn't follow it at all. Because <laughs> y'all were quoting every single line and singing at the top of your lungs. And it was at that moment that I realized that my family maybe wasn't as idyllic as I imagined. For the first time, I was forced con to consider that we might actually be irritating, <laughs> that people might actually find us super annoying. Am I the jerk? That's, the, that's a paraphrase of a popular Reddit category where a person describes a situation like being frustrated after finding hockey tickets in their stocking, and then they ask, you know, the, the internet masses to adjudicate the matter. Am I the jerk, they want to know. And often people are shocked to find out that, yes, they're the problem. It's not the other party. Now this morning, as we continue our series through the book of Malachi, a similar shock awaits Judah. And if we'll be open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, perhaps a similar shock awaits us. We're going to work through the passage today under two main headings. First of all, we'll see an annoying accusation. And secondly, an astonishing advent. An annoying accusation and then an astonishing advent. So let's look first at this annoying accusation. We've called this series, if you're paying attention, it doesn't really matter if you're, if you're not, but we've called this series the airing of grievances because really this prophecy is structured around a number of problems that the Lord has with his people. And we arrive at the latest one here in, at, right at the end of chapter 2, verse 17. Through the mouth of Malachi, God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, if you're, the, if you're the mother of a young kid, I think you'll understand immediately what this word wearied means. And maybe your kid has asked you every day, multiple times a day, Mommy, how many more days till Christmas? It would, it would make complete sense to me. I don't know if this is true, but it would make absolute sense to me if the advent calendar was invented by some mom you know who was sick and tired of answering that question and you understand that weary here doesn't strictly mean physically tired and of course god doesn't grow weary in that sense it it means more like ready to pull your hair out from being exasperated or irritated or annoyed this is how the Lord feels about Israel's words. 
Now, by this point in Malachi, I'm sure you can predict what happens next. This follows a formula, so to speak, and the, the people are going to respond with stubbornness, with defensiveness. They're going to be highly offended as they object. How, ha how have we wearied him? What words are we speaking that are so wearisome? Well, it's when they repeatedly say this type of thing, Malachi is, is pleased to explain. When you say things like, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Or when they ask this type of question, where is the God of justice? Well, here's the situation. The people of Israel have been brought back from exile. They've been rescued from their captivity and they've been returned to the land of promise. This is a, a gracious thing that God has done. And they've rebuilt the capital city. They've rebuilt the walls, fortifying it all. They've rebuilt the, the temple, the dwelling place of, of the Lord God. And you have to believe that the expectation of these returning exiles was like sky high. This is this is going to be great. Finally, we're back. We're the people of God. We're, we're the nation of God. Uh, these people anticipated unparalleled prosperity and peace in the presence of God and under his pleasure. This was going to be a golden age. But a generation or two later, the reality looked nothing like their expectations. As for the rebuilt temple, it had nothing of its former glory. As for the presence of God, you might recall that after Solomon had finished building the, the first temple, and after he had brought in the Ark of the Covenant and set it in place, and after he had prayed a, a wonderful prayer of dedication, as soon as he finished praying, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 says that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And it says the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. This was, a, this was an incredible and indisputable sign that the Lord God had moved in to his house and that he was now dwelling among his people. Glorious a moment there in Israel's history. But the people in Malachi's day had no such experience. There was no dramatic divine move-in to their rebuilt temple. And as for their prosperity, well, it also hadn't arrived yet. Israel's economy was in the toilet. And actually, it was their pagan neighbors who were prospering. The, the Persians, the, the Babylonians, all of these other nations around them seemed to be just swimming in prosperity, thriving, despite the fact that they are godless pagans. They're, they're barbarous. They have no fear of God before their eyes, and yet they're, they're doing just fine. That's the situation. And by the way, that's a situation that the people of God have always grappled with. And you might be struggling with these same realities today your your neighbors your next door neighbors your co-workers they might be living the dream you know they've got healthy beautiful children 
They've always got brand new vehicles in their driveway. You know, they're out for a nice Sunday morning jog while you're on your way to church. And you wonder, how, how is this fair at all? I'm not the one flying the rainbow flag. I'm not the one voting for baby killers. But I'm the one living paycheck to paycheck. And I'm in and out of the hospital. What, what's up with that? I'm, I'm supposed to be God's man. And this guy's prospering. Well, there's a way to wrestle with that in a way that's not wearisome to the Lord. In fact, I believe that the Lord's ear is attentive to the cries of his people along these lines. You think of Asaph in Psalm 73, who, who, is, who sees the same reality. He's experiencing it, and he's tempted to envy the wicked. And he's tempted to despair when he sees their prosperity and his, you know, his own lack of prosperity. He, he's envious of how the, the, the pagans are always, they, they're so good looking, they're healthy, they're, they're fat and oily, which those are good things in that culture. Maybe not, maybe not as great these days, but that was a sign. If you were, if you were like chubby, if your eyes were swollen, and you were slick, you know, that's a sign that you're, you're doing quite well. And this is the way it was with, all, with the pagans all the time, it seemed. Always seemed to be at ease. Their bank account is growing exponentially. They, they are making more money than they can possibly spend. But in his complaint, you may recall, that Asaph was very careful with his words. If he had said things like, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean. Or if he had said, all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If he had thus spoken, Asaph says, he would have betrayed a whole generation. He would have spoken falsely about the Lord. He would have been a terrible worship leader and testimony to that generation of the Lord's table uh, children. So he's, he's very careful with, with the words that he puts to the thoughts that are swirling around in his head. But Malachi's generation, not careful with their words at all. They have no compunction about saying things like, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God. Now, there's some major problems with that. I hope that you can just see right off the bat. First of all, notice that this is not the language of wondering. This is not the type of thing to say when you're wrestling. This is the language of a settled conclusion. This, this has become a conviction for them. This is where they've landed. And here's the conclusion that they come to, that the Lord, God, calls evil good. That the holy, righteous God gives a thumbs up to wickedness. That he actually delights in evildoers. These are his people. These are the people that put a smile on his face. These out-and-out -out pagans. These wicked people. The Lord delights in those people. Friends, that's not just believers battling bitterness. That is blasphemy. 
And it leads to an extremely cynical question. Where is the God of justice? And you guys are all experts in rhetorical questions, I think. This is not a genuine question. This is a rhetorical question, which is actually a statement. It's a conclusion. It's an assumption, which is that he is totally absent, if he even exists at all. As I say, a very blasphemous and cynical conclusion to come to. Well, this is an annoying accusation, to say the very least. And when you consider how blasphemous these words are, it's almost too mild that the Lord would say that he's wearied by these words. Isn't it more than exasperation and weary, being weary? And I think that this is just one more indication of how incredibly patient the Lord is with his people. You consider the, the thoughts that he, of ours that he endures, the words that he is forced to listen to that are nothing short of blasphemous. How patient of a God we have. And then, and then he condescends to answer the cynical question, where is the God of justice? He doesn't have to answer a statement like that. But it's the Lord's answer that takes up the bulk of our passage. And so, that, so we're going to turn to it now. And we'll take it as our second point. God answers, essentially, by announcing an astonishing advent. An astonishing advent. Now, there's a lot to this announcement, which we read in the first five verses of chapter 3. And I agree, this is kind of a weird chapter division to have. Um, chapter th three really should have started at two seventeen, but from from two seventeen to three five, I mean it's not a great big passage. It's not a very big box, but there is a lot of unwrapping to do, if we could put it that way. There's a lot of tape to cut through. There's many different ribbons that we need to pull on. So the best way that I know to to kind of get at this is to ask some basic questions of the text. And as you know, there are five, I think, standard questions that reporters and other people like to ask when they want to get to the bottom of something. And so we're going to ask some of those questions of the text. And we'll start with the what question, even though that's not on your outline. If you're, if you're using a, an outline that we've prepared for you, um, we didn't put that on there just because it's a a smaller, I think we can dispense with this one a little bit easier. I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Okay, when I say Advent, hopefully by the third week of December, you know what Advent means and is. Uh, Rob and Matt have done a great job helping us understand that Advent simply means a coming. It refers to the, the arrival of a significant person or event or often both of those things kind of wrapped up together. Now, I want you to just notice some of the words in our passage that indicate 
that Advent is what we're talking about. That that's what's in view here. So look at verse 1. Notice the words come and coming. Again, in verse 2, the word coming and appears. And then finally, at the beginning of verse 5, we read of a drawing near. Those are all Advent words. We're talking here about some sort of an Advent. That's the what. But now we want to know the when. When will this Advent happen? And obviously the people in Malachi's day wanted to know the when. They ask, where is the God of justice? But this is ultimately a when sort of a question. When, when, when my wife calls um, around 5 or 5.30 and she asks, where are you? I understand that what she's really asking is, when will you be home? It sounds like a where question, but actually it's a when question. And um, I, I try to tell her by, to the best of my ability. But the Lord, for his part, doesn't answer the when question with any kind of specificity. It's almost like it's not for man to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And this is how we operate. We desperately want to know the, the, the days and the times of God's plan. We, we want to know exactly when it is that God is going to do a certain thing. And God almost never indulges our curiosity by divulging his calendar. He, he's never like, here, let me just pop open my eye calendar and show you when I'm going to do that thing. That's not the way that the Lord works. And um, what he does do, though, instead of giving us the precise timing and that kind of information that we want, he gives us the information that we need, which is that this advent is imminent. It could happen at any time. There's a speed and a suddenness to it that might catch people off guard. But he tells us these things so that we wouldn't be caught off guard. Listen to the language of imminence in this passage. It starts right away in verse 1 when the Lord says, Behold, I. And have you ever um, like quietly entered a room, maybe at a small group Christmas party or something, and, and you sidle up to a circle of people and you hear someone asking, where is Dave? Except they use your name instead of mine. Well, it's always a great feeling to, to, to get to say, I'm right here. And they spin around and maybe they're embarrassed because they've been talking smack about you or whatever. But that, that's a good moment when people don't know that you're there and you're like, here I am. Well, in the last verse of chapter 2, the people have just been saying cynically, where is the God of justice? And right away the Lord answers, behold. And it's in the original Hebrew, the personal pronoun I is attached to the word behold. The, it's all jammed together. So it's like, behold I, you know, it, it's me. This is the Lord answering the question in the most forceful way possible. 
boom, it's me. Here I am. I've been here the whole time. The problem hasn't been my lack of presence. The problem is your lack of perception. Here I am, and here's what I'm about to do. And behold, that's an urgent sort of a word, isn't it? Behold. When someone tell, we don't use that language, but we do use the language like, look. It's, there's an urgency to that. It, it's meant to grab you, you know, like the way that your mom grabs you with two hands by the head and, and moves your neck so that your eyes are looking where they're supposed to look. And usually she wants you to look at her directly in the eye as she tells you something. And then you know what happens like a second later is that your neck and your eyes begin to drift and, and your mom grabs it again and refocuses it. Well, in the same way, the Lord has to say again, halfway through verse 1, Behold. He says it at the beginning. He says it in the middle. There's an urgency. He wants our attention. And also in verse 1, you'll find the words suddenly and swift in verse 5. And all of that leaves us with the distinct impression that while we might not know the day or the hour of this advent, it is imminent. It's going to happen suddenly. It could happen at any time. At the same time, it won't happen without some, some warning, some preparation. And this brings us to the next question that we're going to have to ask of this text, and that is the who question. Who are the who's of this passage? I'll just let you know that this is the most complicated of all of the questions. What makes it so complicated is that the Lord seems to refer to different parties but again, he's not specific, and the Lord's also very easy. He, he can shift seamlessly between the first person and the third person. So it's hard to know, is he referring to himself or someone else? So let's try to tease this out, okay? Let's try to identify all the different who's in verse 1, and we'll take it piece by piece. Uh, it'll be helpful to you if you follow along in your Bibles. The Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, so there are two parties here. The Lord, who's speaking, and his messenger. And it seems like both are going to advent, both are going to arrive on the scene, but first... The messenger is going to arrive on the scene. And his role is going to be to prepare the way. This messenger. His role is to prepare the way. And this idea, I think, is going to be very understandable for the people of that time and in that culture. Malachi's original audience would, first of all, it's an image that the prophets used a lot. Um, it's the image of this king coming to a particular town under his reign for a royal visit. And, you know, the, the king would, wouldn't just show up unannounced. Rather, he, ahead of his visit, he would send a, a messenger of sorts. He would dispatch a, 
a servant to serve as messenger to announce to the people that the king is coming. And then that gave the townspeople enough time, enough of a heads up where they could make all of the necessary preparations, food and all of the rest. But one of the most important things that you need to prepare are the streets. Now, I was on the road a lot this past week, traveling to and from Kentucky, and I noticed that whenever I passed into a new state, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, I would see the sign on the side of the road, and then Google Maps was very kind to announce to me, take over the radio and announce to me that I welcome into that particular state. And I noticed something else happen at that same time. The sound changed in my car, you know, and, and the feel, like the sound of my tires on pavement suddenly became very, very soft and steady. Everything suddenly was quiet and smooth. And then eventually, of course, things went back to rough and loud. But for the first few miles into a new state, the roads, I don't know if you've noticed this, are amazing. It seems as if these states are putting all of their resources into making a good impression. You know, they want you to feel like you're driving on glass as you look up and see the Welcome to Ohio sign. And it was the same in ancient days. You know, if you knew your king was coming, you'd get, you'd get out there and fill up all the potholes You'd flatten out all of the mounds of dirt that have built up. You would, if, if I could use the language of scripture, you would exalt every valley and every mountain and hill you'd make low. You'd make a straight, you'd make straight in the desert a highway for your king. And this is the job of the messenger, to prepare the way. Messenger, by the way, is a key word in this passage. Well, in this book. In this prophecy, you might recall that Malachi's name means messenger. But the one referred to in verse 1 is not Malachi. It's a different messenger. And there's still another messenger that's referred to in this verse. I'm talking about the messenger of the covenant. More on that in just a minute. You see how confusing this could get? But we're doing fine. You're doing great. We've identified one party, the messenger, who prepares the way before me. Now, who is that me? It's the Lord who's speaking. It's the Lord God, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, the one that's been speaking all along. And so we understand that, that he is the me that's going to be coming. This is his advent. So far, so good. But now the Lord shifts from first person to third person. So it's no longer me, but the Lord whom you seek suddenly coming to his temple. What, what's going on here? Is this, is this the Lord referring to himself in the third person? You know, like Santa does when you're sitting on his lap in the mall, and he asks you, have you, have you been good? And you hesitate a bit because you want to be honest, but not too honest. And, and the jolly old elf says, Santa knows if you've been naughty or nice. But then 
you're confused as a kid, but I thought you were Santa. Why are you saying Santa? You know, why, why, don't, why didn't you say, I know that you've been, if you've been naughty or nice? Why are you saying Santa knows if you're naughty or nice? It's a little confusing, right? But you can't ask those kinds of questions or else you're definitely getting coal, you know? So, th but the question is, like, is the Lord referring to himself in the third person? Or is he speaking about a separate party? And then calling that separate party the Lord. And then who is this messenger of the covenant? Is this yet another party? I don't think so. I, I think this is another way of referring to this Lord who is coming. But now we've got two separate messengers, one to prepare the way and another to reaffirm the covenant or to restore it, perhaps, renew it, or perhaps even to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Again, it's, that sounds like two parties. But two people called the Lord? That doesn't sound right. That sounds almost blasphemous that you would attach a divine name to someone who is not the Lord of hosts. But it wouldn't be the first time that we've ever come across something like this. For example, do you remember Psalm 110? David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The, these are all hints in the Old Testament. All of this, you get the impression that this, all this ambiguity is intentional. That there's more to this one Lord than meets the eye. It's confusing, all right. But on hindsight, the fuller revelation of the New Testament helps us to understand exactly what's going on. Sitting as we do on this side of the advent, we're able to clearly identify these parties. This Lord that has suddenly come to his temple, this messenger of the covenant, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man. He's distinct from the person of the Lord of hosts, yet he's of the same nature. He's so closely identified with, with the Father that in speaking of the one, you are speaking of the other. And in seeing and knowing the Son, you are seeing and knowing the Father. Indeed, the advent of Emmanuel is the reality that God himself has come to us. Fur furthermore, it's Jesus himself who identifies John the Baptist as the messenger that spoke of in verse 1, who was sent to prepare the way for him. And this connection is made in all four Gospels, but I think most clearly it's made in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. Jesus says this about John the Baptist. This is he of whom it is written, and then he quotes Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will pre prepare your way before you. Jesus makes this connection for us explicitly. And then that helps us understand what 
preparation for the Advent entails. Because we know that John came preaching a gospel of repentance. That what we need to do since the king is arriving is some spiritual roadwork. There, there's some construction that needs to pl- take place in our hearts. And this leads us rather nicely to the last question that we need to ask of the text, which is why? Why the advent? And the answer to this question may surprise you, as it most certainly surprised Malachi's original audience. This is going to be rather astonishing of an advent. Let's not forget the flow. You know, we've kind of dug into the details for the last few minutes, but now we've got to uh, zoom out again and remind ourselves of the context. The people of Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, they're complaining against the Lord. They're accusing him of not being long, of, of, of being just way too casual about wickedness. And not just that, but actually delighting in it. The Jews, on the other hand, apparently they delight in all of the right things, as the Lord points out, I think, sarcastically in verse 1. You know, they, the Lord delights in wicked people, but they, they delight in the glory of the Lord. They delight in the appearance of of the Lord of glory. The Lord, he delights in evildoers. So you you see what's going on here. The the Israelites are self-righteous, even as they blaspheme. And, and, and they're longing that in his righteous indignation, the Lord would arise and appear, that he would show himself to be just and that he would deal decisively with wickedness. And this is how the passage proceeds. The Lord says, oh, you, you want me to deal with wickedness, do you? And the, the Israelites are rubbing their hands together saying, yeah, Go on, Lord, get him. And the Lord says, okay. Have you ever heard that expression, be careful what you wish for? Maybe some of you kids are hearing it this time of year. Maybe you're asking for a a cute little puppy for Christmas. Uh, You've seen them on the movie. They're just so adorable, this cute little Dalmatian. Be careful what you ask for, because not only do dogs require a lot of work, they have to eat, and they have to, you know, on the other end, they, but then Dalmatians in particular, they grow up to be super aggressive. They're a challenging breed to say the very least. Be careful what you wish for. Now, if we think that we've got the Lord tamed and we're, we're yelling at him to, to sick him when it comes to the wicked, and I don't know if you're doing this. I wonder if you're doing this when you look at this degenerate culture that we're part of and you see the most gruesome and grotesque displays of godlessness out there. Do you have, do you have a heart? Do you even say with your, your voice basically like, go get him? Lord, sick them. Be careful what you wish for. Because when you let go of the leash and the Lord takes off in a tear, he might just run directly 
to you. Do you see this in verse 3? He comes to the house of Levi. Do you see this in verse 5? He draws near to you speedily. Why? We, we want to know why. What, what is the purpose of, of the advent? And, and that's how the, these verses continue. He draws near to you for judgment. He enters the temple to purify the sons of Levi. He, we're not even talking about the wicked pagans, the, the Persians, the Babylonians. He's interested in his people and their holiness and their righteousness and their purity. Those are the whys of the advent. Those are the reasons for the season. Purification and judgment. Now, that's not exactly what you typically think of. But then again, this is an astonishing advent. You know, we're, we're used to thinking about comfort, comforting realities like joy and hope and, and peace and, you know, these lovely candles and the, the little flame flickers in the, the coziest way. And I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. Those are definitely elements of all of this. But I wonder if, on the basis of this passage, a more fitting symbolism might be to have a, a blowtorch rather than a candle. Th this is no gentle Lord that advents. We, we're sinners. Christmas is all about coming to the realization that I'm the jerk. It, it's not, it, you know, the, pri the problem with the world is not pri primarily the existence of all of these godless pagans who are legislating immorality and all of the rest. You have not understood the advent. You've not understood Christmas until you, until you realize that you're the problem. And I'm the problem. What desperately needs to be dealt with here is my own sin and my own wickedness. Now, we don't, we don't have time to penetrate the depths of this, but I just want you to notice where it starts. It starts with his people, and it starts with the leadership of his people. If you've been tracking with us in our study of Malachi, you'll understand that the priests are sinful people. They have offered lame liturgy. They have not been walking with the Lord as they were intended to. They have tailored the message in order to appease people and to ingratiate themselves with certain people. And it's very true, isn't it, that judgment needs to begin with the house of the Lord, with his own people. And so he he says that when he comes, and he's going to come suddenly, he's going to come to his temple. And he's going to come for the purpose of refining the sons of Levi, purifying them. And he uses, Malachi uses a, a couple of images here that are, I think, are quite helpful. Um, you can take your pick, either laundry 
the idea of soap and scrubbing out um, dirt um, to get laundry nice and clean. Or it seems like the predominant one is the idea of, of a silversmith. And actually the, the imagery here, here is really beautiful. You know how a silversmith would, would sit himself down in front of um, a, you know, a furnace or a fire and he would heat up this small vessel of silver. But this is not pure silver. This is silver that's mixed through with all sorts of impurities. And as he heats that up, and as he perhaps uses different chemical processes, you see the impurities rise to the top and he skims them off. And you see the, the really personal, hands-on kind of interaction that this silversmith has with his silver. And I was struck by um, an old commentator who, when I was reading and studying this week, who, who really kind of elaborated on this image and showed how, how Jesus is this silversmith and what he's doing in our lives is to remove all of this dross, all of this impurity. And the silversmith knows that that process is complete, that he has done his job when he can see his own image in the molten silver as he leans over and he sees his reflection staring back at him. And friends, this is, this is what the Lord is doing. This is what he's interested in. This is your sanctification. This is, this is what he's designing all of these difficult circumstances that you're made to endure. This is a, a gracious, hands-on, loving silversmith who's refining you and purifying you. So interested in removing our sins is this Savior, that he goes to the cross and he dies in our place. He, he, he wants to redeem his people. He, he, he is offering himself as the, the final sacrifice, the only necessary sacrifice for sinners like you and I. What a savior. What a savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he doesn't just leave us to ourselves, ourselves, but by his spirit, he continues that process of removing the sin in our lives that we so cling to. And he removes them like dross so that eventually we are conformed to his image. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. And what strikes you if you're following the flow of this passage, and if you're following the, the ways that the Lord has confronted his people through Malachi already in this prophecy, you'll realize that what he's describing here is not just sins that the wicked and the reprobate pagans engage in, but these are sins that his people have been dabbling in. They've, they've begun to view God as basically non-existent, not present. They've become practical atheists, and so they've turned to sorcery and fortune-telling through the various means of trying to 
if, if, if the Lord's not going to hear us and deal with us, then we're going to maybe consult the demons for a little bit of help. About against adulterers, he's, he's just dealt with the problem in, that was happening among the people in that day of um, quick and easy, no-fault divorce. The idea of taking on uh, pagan wives against the, those who swear falsely and perhaps in marriage vows. But basically, this is just saying yes to something that you fully intend to say no to. Against those who oppress hired workers in their wages. They, they fleece their, their workers. They, they squeeze them for as much as they can get out of them, and they don't pay them what they're worth. They, they don't pay them on a payday. They make them wait. And, and, and who are they dealing with? Widows and fatherless, people that are vulnerable, people that depend on their work and their earnings to live. These are people that are thrusting aside the sojourner. These are... These are people that, ha, that have come through, who are, who are coming through the nation of Israel. They've been displaced because of wicked people, perhaps, for, because of war, because of a dictator, because of, you know, no social opportunity. And they come to Israel, which is meant to be a, a place of blessing for these people. And, and the, the Jewish people are just thrusting them aside, not even a care for their plight and I wonder I wonder if you entertain that same kind of mindset in your own mind when you think about foreigners when you think about people that are not from here and I'm not even talking about policy here I'm talking about your heart towards those we're not dealing with pagans we're dealing with people that claim to be the people of God who are dabbling in all of these sins that are reprehensible and the advent means that the lord draws near to deal decisively with that sin and as i said he he's so serious about it that he offers himself in the place of sinners he draws so near that he actually endures the judgment for us that we deserve at the hands of the Lord God. Well, I thank you for your attention. I um, I hope that um, the Lord will bless uh, the reading and the preaching, the studying of His Word. Pray that you will consider these things as you as you head it into even more deeply into this Advent season, as you think about the arrival of this Lord. I want to give some thought, give some consideration and prayer and self-examination to the fact that, astonishingly, his advent is for purification and judgment. Amen? Amen.